following audio is from a sermon series entitled, A Church for the City. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Jeremiah 29, 4-14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare. And not for evil, to give you a hope, a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and, sorry people, and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. If you are just joining us, we have begun this sermon series. I've been talking about a church for the city. Um, So at Sacred City, our goal in being a church is not just to build a great church, but to build a great city. And we believe that great cities are created when there is a gospel movement. Where the word of God is preached, where the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed in a way that produces personal transformation, forms meaningful community, brings social justice, and cultural renewal. And we're praying that God would do that right here in the Quad Cities. Um, Last week we started off this sermon series with, with the basic thought that God loves the city. God loves the Quad Cities. God loves Moline. And because God loves our city, because God loves Rock Island, Moline, uh, uh, Davenport, Bettendorf, all the cities that are around us, we ought to love our cities too. But here's the rub. That, that loving the city, the way that Jesus calls us to love the city, is actually really difficult especially for Christians, because it requires us to live in this tension. And we we talked a little bit about this tension last week where while God loves the city, he's also grieved by the city. See, on, on one hand, there's a lot of potential in the city for glorifying God. There's more image of God per square foot in the city than anywhere else on the globe. That there's more of an opportunity for the promotion of goodness and beauty and truth just based on the density of human population. Yet, at the same time, the city is plagued with brokenness, injustice, 
sin and evil. Right? We, we can look at our city, we can look at any city and say, well, this is good, but things are not the way it should be. And as Christians, loving the city requires us to have the ability to receive and embrace what is good about the city. While at the same time, rejecting or redeeming what is not quite good about the city. And that's the tension that Christians live in. We, we receive some things, we either, we either reject or redeem other things. And being faithful, and this is the tension here of being faithful to Jesus, listening to the way that he commands us to live while loving a city that is oftentimes unfaithful. Now, when Christians live in this tension well, the church is the soul of the city. Uh, I was going to share with you this letter um, to, uh, oh man, I forget his name. It's a, it's a letter from like a couple hundred years after Jesus walked the earth about how the church was interacting. I don't think I'm going to have time to do that. I'll post it on Realm this week. But in that letter is that as Christians are living uh, faithfully to Jesus and loving the city, they are the soul of the city. Right? As we gather to be, uh, to be filled with the hope of Christ on Sunday mornings, and as we are scattered to permeate the city, Christians go everywhere within the city, yet we are distinct from it. We, we are a life-giving presence in a perishing city. And we can, we can say this and we can affirm this in theory, but the question is, what does this look like? How do we as Christians actually live in the tension of being faithful to Jesus and actively engaging with the city and loving it well? Now, throughout history... Throughout the history of the church, there have been bright spots where the church has done a really good job of living in this tension well. Where they've been faithful to Jesus, they've loved the city, they've been able to see the fruit of it. Where they, they've not only seen conversions where people come to saving faith in Jesus, but they see change and renewal and revitalization within their own city. But it seems that there are even more examples throughout church history of where the church has failed to live well in this tension. Instead of living in the tension and keeping on the straight and narrow, Christians and churches have veered into the ditch. And just like on the highway, there's a ditch on either side of the road. The first ditch that Christians tend to veer into is the ditch of isolation. Now, this happens when, when Christians think they can love the city but do it from a distance. Because they have this realization that, that to, to be faithful to Jesus means it's going to put you at odds with the general stream of thought with the culture. Right? You're going to be the odd man out in some sense. In some ways, it's too risky to get close to the city. It's too risky to, to have your Christian worldview and, and be close to a secular worldview and think that, well, that worldview is going to rub off on the Christian worldview. And the, the city, clearly, the cultural norms within the city are not necessarily enthusiastic about some of the things that Jesus has to say. Right? So in a sense, the culture doesn't want to hear 
or to see what it looks like to live a holy life, to live righteously before God. And so feeling that tension, Christians might be inclined to to say, you know what, I'm just going to pursue faithfulness to Jesus. And to do that, I feel like I have to detach from the culture. I have to detach. I have to separate a little bit from the city. And so what happens is Christians start to create these enclaves or subcultures where they feel sort of cut off from the larger context of the city, the culture of the city, and and they sort of live in this alternate culture within their enclave. Now, there are some extreme cases of this where you literally have communities who are established and living outside of the city. Think of Benedictine uh, monasteries, Beautiful places typically, but, but they're usually separated geographically. You think of Amish communities that are, that are away as away. They have a completely different lifestyle, right? The, these communities are geographically detached, yet culturally it seems that they're even more so detached. They see preserving their values as more important than engaging with the culture, with loving the city. But veering into the ditch of isolation doesn't just happen if you live outside of the city. In fact, you can do this to some degree even if you live within city, within city limits. It happens when Christians tend to only interact or have predominant interactions with people who are in the same camp. Where the church becomes a sort of holy huddle. Everybody seems to be on the same page, have the same ideas, have the same worldview. And what happens in in situations like that, yeah, maybe we work in a secular workspace or our kids go to public school or or these different places where where there's a couple of like intersections where our our Christian worldview bumps up against a, a secular worldview. But, but we tend to have compartmentalized relationships, right? Our, our, our friends are predominantly church friends, right? We might go to work, but our work relationships stay at work. They don't, they don't uh, spill over into the rest of our life. Our gym buddies stay our gym buddies. We don't, we don't invite them into our homes, into our space. We might even tend to gravitate towards certain establishments where we know what the playlist is going to be, right? Like we, we like to go to Hobby Lobby because there's that nice Christian music in the background, Chick-fil-A. Right? We, we gravitate to those places that, that seem to share Christian values, and those become our favorite places. And, and in, in going to those places and, and giving ourselves to those places, even in the way that, that we support the arts, right? It, Like goodness, beauty, and truth, if something is good and beautiful and true, it doesn't have to be Christian in order for to glorify God. Like you don't have to go to Christian concerts to hear good, God-glorifying music. And so what happens is that Christians tend to disengage from the culture, to disengage from the things that the city celebrates. Right, instead of going to the races, like our, our city loves races and 5Ks and marathons. And the, like, instead of going and participating with the festivals, we tend to kind of isolate, stay home, 
And in my experience of the evangelical world, the more enthusiastic you are about the Bible, the more concerned you are with understanding and living in line with the truth, the more you will gravitate towards this isolation mentality. Now, it's a good thing because when we love the Bible, we're being formed in a Christian worldview. We're developing a new lens to see the entire world through. And in developing this lens, you become more apt at seeing the differences between a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, and a secular worldview. And when you see those two things, you you see there's really not a lot of overlap between those two worldviews. That they really aren't that compatible. And so instead of engaging and offering an alternative, something that's actually what I would say is a better worldview, we we tend to slide into the background just sort of fly under the radar, do our own thing. See, the problem with this, that even though we're being faithful to Jesus, we want to live the way Jesus wants us to live, we, we, we miss it. Because Jesus wants us to engage with the culture. See, Jesus wants us to be where we are in the city so that we can present people in our city with the opportunity to experience, to see, to taste, to feel the goodness, the beauty, and the truth that a Christian worldview offers. To to provide an alternative way of looking at the world. So that's the first ditch that that Christians tend to, to veer into, the ditch of isolation. The second ditch that Christians often veer into is the ditch of assimilation. This is where Christians have a desire to, to love the city so well, right? to, to be with the people, to, to be like the people. And over time, what happens is our faithfulness to Jesus starts to take the back seat, right? It becomes all about loving the city. And slowly with time, we become less and less faithful to Jesus and we become indistinguishable from the rest of the culture. We start to lose our conviction of our Christian worldview. We lose conviction for the gospel, for for God's truth. And as that happens, the pursuit of holiness, the, the pursuit of righteous living tends to wane. And little by little, churches start taking on the dynamics of the city instead of the dynamics of Jesus. Unfortunately, this has been the trajectory of many mainline denominations. More and more churches, denominations are moving in a liberal direction, away from Scripture and more uh, accommodating to the culture. So much so that some of the bigger denominations have actually made a split where, where there are some people who love the Bible and, and want to say, you know what, I love what we stand for. I love loving the city, but I still want to be faithful to Jesus. And so there's this, been this split within major denominations. Our views of morality change to accommodate secular worldview, our our, our idea of salvation becomes weaker. The thought of scripture being inerrant seems to take the back seat, and and a lot of times it gets discarded, changing things or or changing, oh, well, that was true then, it's not true now. 
our views of sexuality and marriage tend to liberalize with the culture. And this is all in sort of under, it's all under the guise of being more appealing to the culture. But in being more appealing to the culture, we lose the distinctiveness and we tend to compromise. And this isn't just in moral or theological ways either. See, it has a profound impact on the church where the culture of the church actually changes. Instead of the church being a, a, a calling people to biblical community, assimilation with the culture leads the church to cater toward individualism. You, you do your own thing. Like we're here when you want to show up. Instead of calling people to service and hospitality, the church starts catering to comfort and convenience. The church will press into consumerism to offer professional programs and services rather than providing a framework where people can practice living sacrificially. See, with both of these ditches, there's great danger. And while these two ditches might be on opposite sides of the road, they are at their core very similar. At the core, they both share an underlying reality, a fear of man. Right? Even more specifically, a fear of being rejected. Now, this is how it plays out, right? Some, some people want to isolate and be with like-minded people because they think that if I interact with people who think differently than me, then, then they're just going to push me away anyway, so I'm going to beat them to the punch. I'm going to beat them to, to rejecting me by isolating myself, pulling away. And those who assimilate with the culture, those people who have one foot in and one foot out of the church, one foot in the culture, one foot out of the culture. See, they, they want to... They want to avoid rejection of the people in sort of the same way. And instead of like just the, the faithfulness piece, they say, well, we'll make, we'll make adjustments. Right? So you can look at me and, and affirm what I stand for. And if the church is veering into either one of these ditches, the church is in a very, very unhealthy spot. In fact, the whole idea of, of the church being the soul of the city now means that the, that the city is soul sick. It exposes a lack of gospel awareness. Paul tells us that, that we're not people of fear. We're not, we're not those who are afraid of the opinions of men. We're not afraid of being rejected. He says in 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, we are not given a spirit of fear or timidness. But in Christ, we have a spirit of power, of love, and self-control. That is the key to living in that tension of being faithful to Jesus, yet engaging with the city. When fear of being rejected dominates the way that we operate, it means that we have missed, we don't understand the gospel message. And the gospel message is this. You belong. The gospel tells us that, that you are accepted. But at the same time, it simultaneously tells us, yes, you, you are accepted. Yes, you belong, but you don't entirely belong here. 
Yes, you belong, but you don't entirely belong here, right? There is this tendency, there is this inclination that you might be rejected. And so let me just unpack this because understanding this reality sets the stage to getting into the practical stuff of how we really love our city and be faithful to Jesus. From birth, we are all looking for a place to belong. Every single human being is hardwired with a desire for acceptance. And some of us might find that in our nuclear families. We've, We've had the benefit. We've been blessed by God to grow up in a family where we always have felt we belong, that there's a place for us here. But there have been people, and there are people in our city who haven't experienced that, where they have had a fight tooth and nail to find the place where they belong. And even if we have experienced that blessedness of being in a place where we know we belong, as we grow, we still have this desire to find our place. As we're growing up, we're always looking for our place. We're looking for the place where we belong. And typically with how the world works, our belonging, our acceptance is based on personality, on looks, on our interests, our possessions, on our skills, our sexuality, our salary, our lifestyle. Right, whatever it is, we're trying to fit some sort of a mold. We're trying to fit in somewhere. And it varies between social groups. And really, this is, for a lot of people, I mean, this can go into your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. This, I mean, a lifelong pursuit of trying to find your place. And then here's the thing. When you find your place, now for the rest of your life, you're trying to maintain that. Right? You're in. Now you have to pay your dues and stay in. Now, all of this acceptance hunger that we experience in our life, really what it's doing is pointing to a deeper longing that everybody has, which is to be accepted by God. Now, here's the good news of the gospel. It says that that when you look to Jesus and when you put your trust in him, you are accepted by God. It's not based on any of your attributes. It's not based on what you bring to the table or any of your capabilities. It's based solely upon the finished work of Jesus. You see, your sin, your character flaws, the way that you are when nobody's looking would disqualify you from being accepted from God. That's what sin does. Sin disqualifies us from belonging with God. In fact, that's what you see in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve got to enjoy being in God's presence, knowing that they belonged in a certain place. But when sin entered the world, they were pushed out. But here on the cross, we see Jesus being rejected by God so that we can be accepted, so that we can find where we belong. And when we find this acceptance that we have in Christ, You don't have to work to maintain it. In fact, any other sort of, this is what true acceptance feels like. That even at my worst, Jesus looks at me and he loves me and tells me I'm accepted. And it's sealed in blood. You you, you don't have to work for it. If your faith is in Christ, you belong. 
Yet even as we have this profound acceptance by God, Jesus tells us that we can still expect to be rejected by the world. And so to help Christians navigate this tension, being fully accepted by God and maybe partially at best accepted by the culture yet probably rejected in a lot of ways, God gives us assurance and confidence of this ultimate acceptance that, that actually trumps, an acceptance that is so powerful that it trumps the world's rejection. And the Bible uses a lot of belonging language to help us understand this. Scripture tells us that you have been adopted. You were once an orphan. You once didn't belong, but now you are part of a family. Tells us that once you were discarded, put out on the margins, but now God has chosen you. You are a chosen people, hand-selected by God. Ephesians 2.19 says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're never, no longer on the fringes, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's belonging language. Philippians 3.30 says that you are citizens of heaven. You, you, you have a place. You are part of a new city in heaven. And what this means for Christians is that now we live as dual citizens. We have a dual citizenship where, yes, we live here in this world, but this world is not our home. That, that our home is in heaven. In fact, if you look at Hebrews 13, uh, verse 14, it tells us that, that our time here uh, in this city has is, is got an expiration date. That, that we actually don't have a future here. There is a new city coming, a new glorious city, that, that heaven is that city. And this place of heaven will be our final Resting place. Now, theologians use this dual citizenship language, but, but even what's maybe more fitting is this idea of being resident aliens. Like we're aliens in the sense that this world isn't our home. This isn't the final place where we will be. We belong elsewhere. But listen, God has placed us here in this moment of time, in this specific geographical location. That God has made us residents in this place. And so we live as resident aliens. And living as resident aliens, this shapes the way that Christians live, not, not only as we live for the future and think we set our mind toward glory, but it affects the way that we live in this present tense. We don't say, oh, the, what's here right now doesn't matter. It's all going to get wiped away anyway, so we might as well just kind of do our own thing. No, that's not, that's not what happens. We're not like squatters living in a rundown house that's slotted for demolition the next day. Right? If, you, if your squatters live in a house that's slotted for demolition the next day, you're, you're not going to clean up your spills. You're not going to re replace any of the damage, the scuffs on the wall. You're not going to put things back the way that they were. That, that's not how Christians occupy this space. No, it, our future reality of living in heaven, of being citizens of heaven, enables us to live better in the present tense. See, we have to understand this, that being citizens of heaven makes us better quad citizens right now. That, that we actually 
have a deep love. We have a deep concern that we are radically for the city. Now, this is why Jeremiah 29 is still relevant to Christians today. Because in this, in this context where, where we read Jeremiah 29, Christians are much like Israel in the sense that Israel here in this scenario are also functioning as resident aliens. They are occupying a space that really isn't their home. What's happened is uh, they have lost their faithfulness to God. And part of the judgment that had been prophesied as the prophets have come and, and warned them of the, the folly of, of uh, being unfaithful to God, they've, they've actually been overtaken by, uh, by Babylon. That their, their nation has sort of been ransacked and, and Babylon has come in and then they have taken the people of Israel and brought them into their own city. So now Israel, instead of living in Jerusalem, instead of living in the place where that was like their own space, they are now foreigners in a distant land. This new, this, and you can think of, of Babylon as sin city. The sin city is their new home. So there's a, a lot of parallels between Israel here in Jeremiah 29 and Christians in 2019. So let's, let's look here at how God tells them to live here at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what he says to them. Build houses and live in them. You don't need a rent. Go build a house. Own it. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Now, planting a garden is a long, you have to have a long-term vision. You put a seed in the ground, you're not going to get a carrot out the next day. Right? So, uh, have a long-term, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. He's saying don't, don't grow stagnant. And throughout this whole thing as he's telling them, build cities, uh, plant gardens, let your kids marry kids that aren't necessarily of your tribe. What we see here is God is not promoting isolation or segregation. He's not saying go build yourself a little enclave. He's saying engage with the city. Participate in the city. Immerse yourself in the city. And while they are investing and immersed in the city, as we go on, we see that they are not assimilating to the city. That there is still a distinctness about these people as they live in Babylon. They have been set apart. They're, you're, you, they are unique. They are not necessarily falling in line with the cultural norms. And you can see that in their singular focus in prayer and the worship of God. Now, Babylon was a mega pagan city. They had all kinds of gods. They had, you want a god for this or that. You, you can find any god you want. But the Jewish people were monotheistic. They had one God. They believed that, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so they knew that there were no other gods. And so their pursuit, their radical, singular pursuit of this one God would have made them unique. Unique. 
And with that pursuit of God, they would carry certain morals and laws and a certain code to live by that set them apart, that made them different from the rest of the city. See, God's people were meant to keep their distinctiveness while still immersing and engaging themselves with the city. But it's not just about that, because in verse 7, the stakes get raised here. It's not just a matter of participating in the city. Look at what it says here. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, this word welfare in English uh, translates to the Hebrew word shalom. This has actually come up a lot in the last few weeks, talking about shalom, this idea of, of peace. Not just the absence of conflict, but peace in the sense where everything is working the way it ought to be. Where everything is functioning at maximum capacity, where there's a sense of flourishing. And God is saying that as you pray for the city and seek its welfare, that you too yourselves will flourish and grow. See, when the city, when the city stagnates, the church can be the remedy to that. Right? The, the, the church can step in and say, listen, I see that things have sort of plateaued here. But we have a deep conviction for the city. We want to love the city. We want to be for the city. We want to seek the welfare of the city. We want to advance the city. See, this is the power of church planting. This is the power of gospel proclamation. See, the the new spiritual life that we experience within our churches doesn't just stay within these walls. It spills over into the city and has a domino effect that can reinvigorate the whole entire city. Now, last week or yesterday, we had uh, Tyler St. Clair, who's an Actually 9 pastor here uh, from Detroit. Detroit is a city that used to be one of the premier cities in our country. A lot of really cool things going on. But over the last several decades, uh, Detroit has experienced this fast and swift downfall. Businesses have pulled out. People have lost jobs. The city is, it feels, you can, he was talking about literally drive through neighborhoods and feel like there's no human life there at all. This is why Tyler has a conviction to plant a church in a hard place like Detroit because he knows that as the gospel is proclaimed, as new life is given, it it builds up, it spills out into the city. This is the power of the gospel. This is what we're talking about. Not just just proclaiming the gospel in the sense of personal transformation, but seeing the city renewed. Now listen, I, I feel this for our city. When I drive down downtown and I see empty storefronts, When I drive down the avenue and I see these old businesses that were once mom and pop shops that were probably in their heyday were flourishing and now it looks like the walls are boarded up or it just becomes like a a storehouse where there seems to be nothing really going on except for being a place to store sailboat fuel. I have a heart for our city to see a new life breathed into our city. And I think the gospel and, and church planting is the key to see that happen. And it's not presumptuous, presumptuous of this to say this because we have to realize that this is God of, part of God's plan, part of God's mission. 
He wants to see our city renewed. And if you look at uh, Jeremiah 29, the sentness of God's people is all over the place. Right? It says that God has sent his people. It's not that, that Babylon has come and it was Babylon's idea. It was God's, that God sent his people into exile. And just as God has sent Israel into Babylon, as Christians, we are sent into our city to do the same thing that Israel was called to do. Right? Christian, you are here to seek the welfare of Moline. You are here to seek the welfare of Rock Island, of, of, of Davenport, and now is a great time for that as the floodwaters rise, right? as people are maybe losing their homes or business or things are not going well for our city. We are here not only to make disciples, but to plant churches and to see our city renewed. This is what it takes to be a church for the city. We have to learn how to live in that tension well of being faithful to Jesus and being invested and loving our city. And I want to close with some really practical ways to do this, and I'm going to be in my seat. Now, first of all, the first thing that Christians need to do is pray. That, that's the first thing that God tells them to do after these real practical things. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Prayer helps us realize our own limits. Prayer acknowledges that there's a certain point where my powers and my capabilities end and the power of God begins. And we appeal to God on, uh, uh, for that power. And so prayer is the starting point for Christians, not the last resort. We pray for our city. We ask God to intervene in our city. But we don't just stay there with prayer. You know, that's, I feel like that's one of the, the cheesy things about Christian culture is we say, oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you pray for that person. Maybe you actually do pray and lift them up and intercede for them on behalf of the Lord. But how often does that, that become a one-time prayer request and falls to the back? We are actually called to pray and to do something. Now, this starts with being a good neighbor. You, you want to know how to love your city well? You want to know how to work for the welfare of the city? Be a good neighbor. Mow your lawn. Trim the branches on the sidewalks where people might get clocked in the head. Be a good steward of your home. Work to upkeep it. Make it look nice on the outside. I mean, if you want to live in a pit, you can live on the pit on the inside, which is not necessarily great for hospitality when you actually want to invite people in because they're like, I'm never going to their house again because there's cats everywhere. <laughs> I don't know who that was for. I, that, I, that wasn't planned. Right, plant flowers, plant a tree. Shovel your sidewalks in the winter in a timely way. When you find potholes, call City Works. If you're not gonna fill the potholes yourself, call City Works and at least say, hey, I found a pothole that you guys can take a look at. Get to know your neighbor by name. Learn what they're into. Find, find ways to tangibly bless them, whether it's making them a plate of cookies or, or writing them a card or inviting them over to share a meal. Join a neighborhood committee to really invest and put roots down in where you live. 
when you sense an issue, like, like when, if you're always in your home, you have a very limited view of the needs that are around you that you could possibly meet in a pretty easy way. If you're outside sitting on your porch, you have the opportunity to see when your neighbor needs a jump start. This winter, our intersection right at our house had like six devastating potholes that you could literally get lost in. That I would be in bed at night and I would hear people get stuck in these potholes between the, how deep the potholes themselves were and then all of the ice that built up on top of that. And I would hear people spinning their wheels stuck in these potholes, right? not just at night, but in the day too. And I felt the, I, like I needed to go help them. I needed to go do something, push them out. I realized that I wasn't very good at pushing them out, so I went and I got a tow rope. So that way if somebody came, I could pull them on my car, I could yank them out, do things like that. Have eyes to see the issues in your neighborhood. And don't just do it with people who look like you, who talk like you, who think like you. Embrace people from all ethnicities and cultures. Befriend people who think differently than you. Graciously interact with people who have a different view on life, who have a different worldview. I'm just spitfiring here. Here's one idea. Think about how you drive. Don't be a jerk on the bridge. Right, let people zipper merge. Right, give other people the right of way. Right, I, I feel like when I'm behind a steering wheel is a time where I'm the least sanctified in my life. Right, that's a place where we could actually, if Christians really committed to being gracious drivers, we could really change the way our city is. Support local businesses. Keep, keep money local. Fight against oppression and bad companies. Leave good reviews if it helps people generate more business. Tip generously. Join the school board. Join a booster club. Join a neighborhood association. Join the PTA. Find ways to contribute, not just consume from our city, but to enhance and contribute to our city. These things are good places to start. And maybe that's your next step in discipleship. Your next step in following Jesus is to do some of this stuff. Implement some of these things in your own lives. Find ways that you can contribute and work for the welfare of our city. But if this is all we do, then we will never see the sort of renewal that we want to see in our city. We'll never see the sort of peace, the shalom, the welfare that we all have a deep desire for because this true sense of peace, the shalom, only comes when you know that how, how strongly and deeply accepted you are by God in the gospel. And when you know how accepted you are by Christ, you want other people to know that acceptance too. You want to, 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 to remo remove the burden from them, to always constantly try and pursue and to chase the feeling of acceptance. And so sharing the gospel, not just in action, but with words, is the bullseye of faithfulness to Jesus and loving the city. Sharing the gospel with your neighbor is the most loving thing you can do, even if they don't want to hear it at the moment. 
This is what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus and love the city at the same time. And it's only when that happens will a gospel movement happen in our cities. Only then, only then will our city be transformed, not just personally, but in a way where meaningful community is formed, where social justice and cultural renewal take place. So Christian, let us rise up. Let us seek the welfare of our city. Let's, let's take our city before God in prayer. And let's do everything in our power to make this place an enjoyable and delightful place to live. And the more that Christians saturate our city, the more that we live with our hope locked in on Jesus and the new city, our, our citizenship in heaven, the more our city starts to become little by little, more and more like that celestial city. Let's love our neighbor enough to give him a little taste. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that, that you offer us something more appealing, something more um, inspiring, something more compelling than just isolation or assimilation, that you offer us the ability to be distinct in our faithfulness to Christ while still engaging and loving our city, God. And Father, we thank you for the acceptance that you've given us in Christ, that as gospel people, that we can engage in our city in a way, and we don't have to be afraid of rejection, because we know that the blood of Christ was shed, the body was broken, so that we would be accepted, that we would know that we have a place where we belong. So God, we give you thanks for that, and our heart is for our city, that they would know that they also have the opportunity to belong that they are accepted. God, would you help us? Would this meal be a way to strengthen us, to, to satisfy us as we work for the flourishing and the welfare of our city? God, we ask that you would pour your spirit out and we would see a wave of renewal in Moline, Rock Island, and the outlying cities. God, would you help us to, to do this? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.